0: Hello, and welcome to In Unison, the podcast about new choral music and the conductors, composers, and choristers who create it. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San
1: Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Grigoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In
2: Unison!
1: Yeah,
0: I like being in unison! Hey everyone! Today's episode of In Unison continues our mini-series of discussions with the composers to be featured on IOCSF's upcoming concert program, Freshly Squeezed. The performances will take place on December 4th in Berkeley and December 18th in San Francisco. For more information on those concerts, please visit iocsf.org. So Thanksgiving was just last week, and Giacomo and I are very thankful for the generous folks who are helping to support the creation of this podcast. We couldn't have made it this far without our generous donors, so today we're giving a shout-out to the accompanist for the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, Fred Cummins. Thanks so much for the support, Fred, and good luck with the upcoming GGMC concerts. If you would like to help support In Unison, please visit inunisonpodcast.com donate. Our conversation today is with current IOCSF member Sam Mortar about his very first choral composition, Final Notations, an outstanding setting of Adrian Rich's poem of the same name. As you'll learn during the conversation, Sam is actually a chemical engineer by trade, and we don't have access to recordings of any of his other compositions. So, today's music excerpts will be selections from past IOCSF concerts where Sam was singing in the bass section. This first piece is from a freshly squeezed program back in 2017, a live recording of IOCSF singing Kinsfolk, the third movement of Joseph Gregorio's Love Thricewise. Okay, joining us today on In Unison is composer Sam Moore, and Sam has actually been a member of the bass section of IOCSF since 2013. Now, back in 2019, when I was first looking for repertoire for this Freshly Squeezed program, I sent a note out to all the singers of IOCSF, both past and present, asking for scores. And Sam reached out to me uh, and submitted a piece that he had written called Final Notations, which just so happened to be his very first choral composition. Now as we've mentioned before, the Freshly Squeezed program is all about lifting up emerging composers. And I always love to promote those that emerge from within the ensemble, so it really was a no-brainer to program his piece, especially because it's really freaking good. Originally from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Sam is a chemical engineer by trade working in biotechnology, but he has been a choral musician for much of his life. He sang with the choirs at his high school, at MIT, at Berkeley, and of course, currently with IOCSF. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. We are very excited to chat with you.
3: Great.
1: Yeah, glad to be here. Sam, we know you very well because we get to see you every Sunday at IOC rehearsals, which is great, but our audience is just getting to know you right now. And so we love to start with a quick icebreaker. So here's one for you. If you could choose any person from history to be your imaginary friend, who would it be and why?
3: Oh, that's a good one. So um, how does this work? Like this person just follows me around and is invisible to everyone else. Correct. And like I I can consult them on things if they want.
1: Yes, or they could be in your head or they can be a physical manifestation if you wanted to, you know, have a doll that was your I mean, ho- however you however you see it in your
3: mind. There is, yeah, I mean, I read a lot of biographies and things and there's a lot of people I've been admiring, you know, as I've been reading over the past couple months and years. But, you know, his biography I just read recently and it's the first thing that came to mind is, um, do you know the actor William Daniels? Um, he was Mr. Feeney on Boy Meets World. Yes. Um, he was John Adams in the 1776 musical. He was on St. Elsewhere. Um, he was the voice of the car in Knight Rider. And Kit,
1: yes, he was Kit.
3: Yeah, he's he the talking car. I read yes. his biography. It's so charming. Um, he was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, like, great actor, did all this stuff on Broadway. I didn't know until I read this. He was a child star as well. And, like, he had a stage mom that was making him do all this stuff. And I think if I could have him, like, following me around and just consulting me on decisions, you know, and I could I could talk to him, um, I think that'd be great. You know, like, I go to the coffee shop and I'm like, you know, oh, what should I get today? And he's like, oh, well, Sam, I think you should get a latte because that would be <laughs> delicious. Although usually I'm a black coffee man myself. I, I think that'd be great. So I'd go with William Daniels, although he's still with us. Um, I think he's like 95 now or something, but still doing... Very charming Zoom interviews with his wife of sixty or seventy years. So yeah, that's how I'd go with.
1: Thank God he's still with us because I feel like there's an opportunity for him to be one of the voices of like Siri or Alexa, so that he literally can be the voice who answers those questions for you. Oh, I, <laughs> I, I mean, imagine ask, having, yeah. yeah, imagine having Kit, the the Night Rider car being the voice, I, or maybe it is already. That would be. Did, awesome. th- did
3: Ways think of that yet? Like you can get like some oh, different celebrities on Ways. Like that would be. <laughs> That's a no-brainer. Come on. (laughs) Totally.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. He was born March 31st, 1927. So
3: he's uh, 94. Wow. I guess. Yeah. But, yeah, you can watch interviews with him recently. Like, still spry with it. Charming. So, yeah, it's great.
0: So Sam, let's start off by talking a little bit about your musician's journey. You know, how early did you realize that you were a musician and was making music always an important part of your life even as you pursued your career that ultimately led you to becoming a chemical engineer?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, just all through high school, all through middle school, you know, I joined the choir, I was in the musicals, um, I, I played French horn and in band, and I played melophone and marching band. And then, you know, I went off to college. Actually, when I went to college, it was interesting. I, I had sung with the choral director, Bill Cutter, um, who was originally from Pennsylvania, um, and I think he knew some people in in Pennsylvania. I sang with him at like a regional chorus festival, like an audition chorus in Pennsylvania. You know, one of those district and regional and all state things. And um, you know, I was choosing where to go to college. I was into math and science, and so I decided to go to MIT. But I, already having that connection with the choral director of MIT, like singing in that choir, made me really you know want to go to MIT over some other universities because you know you don't know. You think math and science, you don't know if I'm going to be able to continue um you know in in doing art in these ways but but to know the choral director to know they had a good program was great um so yeah all through m.i.t i was in the chamber chorus for a little was in the concert chorus for a little there Um, then i went to get my phd for so for the next five six years i was at berkeley uh, getting my phd in chemical engineering Um, I joined the choir there with Marika Kuzma, um, which really incredible repertoire she just did, you know, for a college choir, um, such a progressive repertoire of of new stuff, Um, things you don't even usually get to sing. We sang the War Requiem when I was there. Um, So that was great. Um, Just a lot of like pieces based on Sephardic music and Morton Feldman, like really abstract things that you're asking college kids, you know, freshmen in college to sing. So really good experience there. Um, And then it was through some of those connections that I ended up meeting uh, some people in Iocsf. I think I was on um, a list for a while, like singers for hire or, you know, pinch hitters in in the Bay Area. And I think it was through that that I got in contact with um, Simona and and ended up joining uh, IOC in 2013, um, just a little bit after I graduated from uh, Berkeley. And, you know, as I started in my career, it's always been great to have, you know, IOC to go to. Um, on the weekends and to to continue doing that throughout my career, I think I would really miss something if I wasn't um, yeah, having having that coral outlet that I had had all through school and to have that outside of school is great too.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, for for a lot of members of Ioc, uh, they're folks who sang in the high quality college choirs while they were in college. But while they were in college, they were studying something else that wasn't music. Music was kind of a side passion um, that they at- attached to their primary path in college. And I'm wondering for you, what would you say that that like choral experience, the musician experience that you had, that was running parallel to your other studies. What What do you think that added? How do you think that it aided your development as an adult and as a professional, even though being a, the professional you are is not a quote unquote music professional?
3: That's an interesting question because it's almost like I don't have a control because I've just been in a choir since I was, you know, 10 or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So for the past 25 years. So um, I, I don't know what it's like not to be in a choir. But I, I think I, I think of, you know, having that artistic outlet and, and it's a time where you can um, just work on something that's totally uh, separate from, um, you know, your day-to-day life or your day-to-day work or when you're at school, your classes, things like that. Um, getting exposure to new art and you always find inspiration, whether it's things happening in your life. You know, sometimes we'll be singing a choral piece that really resonates with something going on in my life. Um, we sang Path, Path of Miracles, you know, a couple seasons ago. And uh, my husband was doing the uh, ALC bike ride, um, a bike ride from San Francisco to L.A. to support um, AIDS uh, research. And uh, AIDS care and things like that. And um, that was so interesting because that piece, Path of Miracles, was about a pilgrimage. And that really resonated w- with me at the time that he was kind of going on this pilgrimage, almost the way that the, the pilgrims in Spain would go to Santiago. You know, all these people, 2,000, 3,000, however many bike riders it is, riding down the coast of California. Um, To go to LA. So sometimes you find those little resonances in your life and um, it inspires you in different ways. Um, And just the sense of community, you know, I I think it really can't be overstated. And especially in a choir where you're using your voice, it's something that we use every day. It's a little bit different from playing an instrument, from playing piano, something like that. Working together with people to create something new, um, I think it just helps preserve your sanity a little bit in these, you know, Crazy times we've been through over the past two, five, ten years um, to to work together as a group to create something and then go to your friends um, and tell your friends to come to the concerts and, and get them exposure to maybe some art or maybe some aspect of you that that they didn't know about previously. So, yeah, it's been hugely important. Um, my whole life and and you know there have been one or two semesters or one or two seasons when I haven't been able to do it. and you know, I miss it right away. I, I really feel like oh, I need to find some um, way to get back into this as soon as possible. so.
1: I love, by the way, that you started off answering this question by like structuring the architecture of your answer as an experiment. <laughs> like, There's no know, control have, and a control group an experimental group. Yeah, how do I how do I split my life into an experimental group and a control? Um, <laughs> which actually leads me uh, to to our next question, talking about uh, your life as a as a composer. Um, this is now your this is your first choral composition, the piece that we're going to be talking about today, Final Notations. Um, Do you consider yourself now a a choral composer? Is this really truly your very, very first choral composition?
3: This is my first composition to be premiered in this context. So yeah, I, I would call it my first choral composition. You know, I took composition classes um, in undergrad and um would have things premiered as part of, you know, the end of year um process for that. Um I think I've had one or two other things, you know, that we sang in small contexts, but it's a totally different experience to have um, you know, even at the first rehearsal, to to hear these things that I had in my head and to what what really struck me is like this is the most people I think that I've ever had working together on like something that that I created and and you know sometimes at work I'll work on a team and I'll be leading a project of 10 20 people something like that and trying to achieve a goal but even there it's like oh the business said we want a new laundry detergent and I'm just helping the business get a new laundry detergent it's been so meaningful to me over the past um, you know season and even in 2020 when we started singing this prior to COVID, it, to think that this was something that existed in my head for you know quite a while, and now there's 28, 30, however many people are in IOC this season, that many people working together to realize an idea that previously just existed in my head. It's um, so meaningful. um yeah, so i've I've really enjoyed this whole process and and excited to see over the next month what happens as we prepare for the concert.
1: So do you think you might ever dust off some of those older pieces and bring some of those as inspirations for new compositions?
3: Yeah, absolutely. i um, I mean, I have so many ideas. I've been, you know, just jotting down things and buying different um working with different software. I think the original thing i I was writing on was a free, a piece of freeware maybe it was you had to pay a little bit um it was called noteworthy composer um for uh you know windows 95 or 98 or whatever it was and that's how i got started and i've been just jotting down little things what i haven't been good at is um finishing pieces and um you know we can even go into a little more about that the compositional process um but but hearing this end result i think is definitely going to um you know, inspire me to to work on and to finish a lot of those um, just pieces and and little notes and little sketches that I've had lying around. So I'm already starting on that as I, as I hear IOC working with this piece.
0: Do you have certain composers that uh, inspire you, that have inspired you over the years, either living or dead?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, I kind of think no matter what I write and, you know, when I've written things for uh, like an art song or or even when I sketch something out, no matter what I write, it always comes out sounding a little bit like modernism, um, like things from, say, 1910, 1920 through the 1950s. Um, I think Samuel Barber is a huge influence. Um, I think some of his art songs, I think some of his choral music are probably some of the greatest pieces ever written. Um, Definitely in the 20th century. Um, Mm -hmm. Aaron Copeland, I would say, is up there as well. Um, I I think it's just kind of my aesthetic where in modernism, the way I see it, when I hear it, you take kind of this unusual harmony or this unusual gesture. Um, and then you just kind of develop that, like without apology over the course of a piece that lasts however long. And, and I wouldn't say I necessarily try to write in that style, um, but no matter what I write, that's how it comes out sounding. And, and also if I write a short story or a poem, you know, it it will come out that way as well. So I think that's kind of my artistic aesthetic. Um, I think more recently, one of the composers that I've gotten into and, and I've been engaging with a lot of his work is uh, Julius Eastman. Um, he is a uh, gay black composer. Um, he, he did a lot of his work in the 1980s. And um, it's a strange kind of like minimalism where it's just very constructed, but also a little more chaotic than something like a Steve Reich or a Philip, Philip Glass. And kind of the tension between, you know, a, a chaos and a construction and a gesture there has been really inspiring recently when I've been writing things. Let's talk a little bit
1: more about that process for, for writing. Tell us a little bit about um, what you discovered about your writing in the process of kind of pulling this first together and what advice you might offer to other folks who are starting off on uh, composing, especially for choirs.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, let me just talk through the timeline of the piece a little bit to start that because this actually developed over like many, many years. Mm. And I, I look at other composers like... Um, I, I sing with a, a choir in the marina, sometimes in the church choir. Um, Eric Choate, I don't know if you know him. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. We sang, we've sung one of his pieces. We sang one of his pieces in the um, the School of Music, the mm-hmm. SF Con- the Music Conservatory. Conservatory. Yeah. yeah, pieces. And, um, you know, he'll present pieces to us and he will have written them in like four days. And I'm like, I can't imagine writing a whole piece beginning to end in, in just four days. But um, the timeline of this is much, much longer. Um, So I first encountered this poem in 2012. Um, Adrian Rich passed away, the poet Adrian Rich passed away in 2012. And it was just a news article or like a blog entry or something in a blog I was reading about her passing. And and this poem was in there. And it just struck me. Um, And initially, I had those first two lines. I wasn't even trying to write a piece at that time. But I had those first two lines pop into my head right away. Um, it will not be simple. It will not be long. And I thought, oh, I really should write something here um, and, and try this. I had been you know, playing around with stuff, but I hadn't written anything seriously in a little bit. Tinkered around with it for a couple of weeks. Um, I got the general structure that I wanted in my head, but I just felt like I couldn't realize everything at a time. At that time, I couldn't realize everything at that time. Um, so I worked on it on and off for you know a couple of years even. And and this started in 2012. So I hadn't joined IOC. Um and and definitely joining IOC and, and hearing that, hearing the kind of pieces that IOC works on, the kind of sound that IOC has, you know, inspired how I completed this. Um and I got through a little more and a little more. And then eventually, you know, seven years later in 2019, um, Nick Weininger, who you've talked to on this podcast, had a reading session um at at one of the singers houses one of the ioc singers houses um and we just sat and read through a couple pieces and i thought you know this is the time this is the chance if i'm ever going to finish this piece i should um so i think i had a month or two heads up before that and and i just sat down and and finished it and we read through it and uh got some feedback there were some things i changed and um yeah, it was later that year that you mentioned, Zane, you sent that email and I responded to it, you know, with this piece that was in, you know, a form that I was happy with. And, and I was very, extremely happy when you said you were going to put on the program for 2020. Um, and, you know, I'm the kind of person also where I don't celebrate things until they happen. Um, so I was looking forward to it. My mom bought tickets to come out to those concerts in, in 2020. And then... You know, I thought something might happen. I didn't think COVID <laughs> was going to happen. Uh, definitely more than I was expecting. But um, you know, I'm so happy that we've uh, we've we've decided to put it on on this program in, in 2021 because I think there's some interesting resonances that came out of it. Um, I, I think what I learned throughout the whole like to get back to the question, I think what I learned throughout the whole process was um, I I think about. The, the process of trying to realize what's in my head, and I think I always had exactly how I wanted this piece to sound in my head or the general idea and and just discovering that um, took a while. Um, I think what I would, you know, say I learned from that is uh, eventually you will be happy with it. Eventually, you will be happy with the end product. There were so many times, um you know, over the years when I was looking at this and I was thinking, oh, is it too short? Is it too obvious? Are the harmonies too basic? Do they not go in as many directions as I want them to? Things like that. And it really almost took me until this year where, you know, I sat away from the piece for a while. And then when you mentioned we'd be singing at Zane, I came back to it and I was like, yeah, this is actually what I had in my head. This is actually what I wanted to realize. I don't want to change a note at this point. And, um, you know, you're happy, you're happy with it. And, um, I think a lot about that there's an ira glass quote i think where he says um you know when you start to create art or create something your taste level is really high but your ability is not as high as your taste level and and what i think is you know i i felt the long process of maybe my ability catching up to my taste level there or experience this process or even um my taste may be changing and and what I was able to create actually deciding that what I created did actually suit my taste and was actually what I wanted to realize. So hopefully that makes sense.
1: Speaking of, uh, of Nick Weininger, um, and in that interview, he talked a lot about his, um, being in his autodidact phase, or being in his self-taught phase. Had you actually... Only, tried... Sorry,
0: only Nick Weininger could use oh, a terrible
1: autodidact. Yes, that, that is, is an such absolute... a
3: Nick Weininger word,
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> would you, um, you know, he talked a lot about just, just sort of being self-taught and kind of figuring out how to compose on his own, and then, of course, he went off to the Coral Chameleon Institute. Are you basically self-taught, and would you ever consider something like an institute, even if there were such a thing on the West Coast?
3: Taken a couple choral writing classes. I mean, this was many years ago. This was in the 2000s um, when I was in undergrad, um, and and that was you know for piano music, for choral music. We did a couple art songs, um, but I haven't taken anything in a long time. And I would say you know just playing through different things, seeing how they work, getting exposure, deciding what kinds of textures and techniques that I like, and incorporating them into my repertoire. Um, I haven't taken a formal class. I haven't read through a book on it in a long time. But um, now that I've completed something, I actually think it's like, oh, I I might want to do that and just learn about some more of those techniques, just so I have new things to incorporate.
0: Um, So you you mentioned the the text of this piece and that the first couple of lines were the first thing that inspired you and you immediately heard the melody and you immediately knew how at least those first two lines were going to be set. What about the rest of the text? How does this piece of of literary art resonate with you, Sam Moore, as a musician um, and composer?
3: You know, what I liked about the poem and thought was really unique Um, was kind of the emotional space that it creates. Um, I think there's a lot of poetry and a lot of music setting that poetry that sets death or describes death as kind of a calming experience or tries to comfort and console people around the experience of death. Um, You think of let down the bars for death, or I think of the Walt Whitman poem, Uh, It's from when Lilac Lost in the Dooryard Bloom, he says, Come lovely and soothing death, undulate round the world. And I think several composers have set that as, uh, you know, his death carols from that poem. Um, And that's not always my experience with death. Um, And what I liked about this poem um, or what resonated with me is um, it's kind of talking about the people that remain um, and the experience that the people who remain have and, and, you know, we all can think whatever we think about the experience of dying and what that would feel like and what might come after that. But this poem is almost written from the the people that are left on Earth after the person passes away. Um, and I think for those people, no matter what you tell yourself, the people that are are back here on in in life, uh, it kind of sucks, right? It kind of sucks that you liked this person. It kind of sucks that they're not around. Anymore, you're not going to get to talk to them anymore. It's um, frustrating, and it's sad, and it feels unfair, and it feels arbitrary. Um, and what I liked about this poem is it, it kind of dwells in in that space, and and it names all that, and it says, "Let's stay here, and and let's just name what we're feeling, and the fact that we didn't want this, we didn't want death to come for us, we didn't want death to come for our friends." Um, and, and it feels unfair. And, and let's just talk about that.
1: Is that actually explicitly what Adrian Rich had said, the it? Because the, the, the text of the poem is, um, it will not be simple. It will take long. It will take all your heart. It will take all your breath. It will be short. And so what, reading through it out of context, it's like, well, what the heck is it? I mean, it could sort of, it could be anything. Is that something that explicitly resonated with you, that idea? Is that sort of how you read
3: her poem? I think part of it was because I encountered it in basically an obituary for her, right? Um, that's what I assumed it was. And then when I looked into a, a little more into it, um, this poem comes from a collection uh, that she published, I think, in 1991 or 1992 um, called An Atlas of the Difficult World. And I think the context for her at that time was two of her friends had just passed away. Um, I, I, Yeah, two of her friends had just passed away. And... Um, If you read that poetry collection, the first half is kind of a description of America as she saw it at that time. And the second half is really permeated um, by death. Um, One of the poems is called Tattered Kaddish. That is, you know, her invoking the Jewish tradition and describing death. And then this poem, Final Notations, is the very last poem in that collection. So I think in the context of that collection, which is, I believe, the first time this poem was published, um, she did mean for it to be about death and to invoke death. Um, But I think it's interesting because um, it's kind of abstract in its language and it has a lot of really interesting images. And um, I think it can accommodate like a number of different interpretations. I think um, actually when we premiered it at Nick Weininger's, or not premiered it, but worked through it at Nick Weininger's house, one of the other singers said, I don't think it's about death at all. I think it's about growing up and like a child becoming older and the passage of time. And, and I've read online different other interpretations where it might be about a relationship. Um, And, and now I can stand back and look at it and see how it's about that. But also I would have set the poem differently if I thought it was about a relationship or nostalgia or childhood or something like that. So I think my setting is, is, you know, reading into a death interpretation of the poem. I also think it's been so interesting to revisit this um, after COVID because this is a poem that she wrote 30 years ago. She she could have had no idea about a respiratory pandemic or something like that, but some of the lines in it just resonate so much for me right now. She's talking about something that touches through your ribs, that takes your heart, that takes your breath. Um, and the line that really does it for me is, um, in the second stanza, um, as a city is occupied, as a bed is occupied. And when I first set this, um, you know, I saw the parallels there and you think of as a city is occupied, um, you think of a siege, something like that. And when I first read it, it I thought, oh, it's just a nice image. Um, but when you look at what's happened about with COVID, you think of a city like New York or New Orleans or some of the cities in northern Italy or in, or in China or in India, where the city was laid siege by this force um and then you look at the next line as a bed is occupied and you can look at the statistics of how many people passed away and be sad about that statistic but luckily it hasn't happened to anyone in my family or my friends but if it happens to your family or your friends you're not worried about the statistic you're worried about the person the person occupying the hospital bed and and i just think that that line resonates so much with, with what we've just gone through in the past two years. And, and I'm so glad we're able to you know sing this piece after that. So yeah, I would say it started off being an abstract conception of death for me, but over the past two years, as I've come back to it, it's almost like the it is is COVID, you know?
0: Were there any specific um compositional techniques and I'm putting that in scare quotes cuz I'm not sure that uh that really it's about technique necessarily but were there certain things that you were trying to accomplish musically to portray what you felt about the text about the words?
3: I think for a lot of it um well the the setting overall most of it is homophonic so we're all singing the same um rhythm, right? We're all singing the same rhythm with different notes. And almost how I conceived of it when I read the text of the poem, I envision the speaker being uh, some voice from kind of beyond the world, right? And um, that's kind of how I set it with this homophonic texture. Like, it's all one voice. We're all singing the same rhythms for most of the poem, except um, it, it changes in one section. And then some, it, it gets passed in between different voices. So whatever voice this speaker has, sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower, sometimes it's two parts, sometimes it's three parts. It changes very radically in texture throughout the poem. So what I was trying to do throughout most of the text was kind of create this otherworldly voice that I thought was the, the speaker of the poem.
0: Now, what about the mixed meter choice? So, so, for our audience, the piece is in a is in a mixed meter setting, with the eighth note being kind of constant throughout. But there's this alternating triplet and duple grouping of notes, and then, as you just mentioned, there is a section in the center of the piece that. Breaks from the more homophonic setting into something that's very staggered and very kind of polyrhythmic in my opinion. What about all of that? what what's the goal? what What are we achieving um, through that compositional technique?
3: Yeah and I struggled a lot that's actually what took the gestation of this piece for so long was writing down the meter because as I would just walk around and you know sing this to myself or have it you know pop into my head at different times I did have a very specific rhythm and a very specific meter in my head and a lot of it was trying to write that down and it wasn't until I completed it and notated it in the way I did um I kind of realized what I was trying to accomplish with the meter. It's all there in the first two lines, and it just gets developed over the rest of the piece. And I didn't do this intentionally, but it, it's just how it worked out. Um, how I set the first two lines the first one, the rhythm is, it will not be simple. So triple it, duple. And then the next line, it will not be long. Uh, it's more like a duple, triple it, but it speeds up from the previous. So when you say, simple you slow down by a triplet to a duple and then when you do b long it speeds up from a duple to a triplet um and that develops a lot throughout the piece not that i did it intentionally it was just writing down like what i was what i had in my head and trying to realize that um but as i think about it more what it creates this sense of is Time is always expanding and contracting in a way that might be a little bit unexpected. And and I think we as a choir, I wanted it to feel like speech, but also feel a little bit um, ornamented or a little bit deliberate, like we're reciting rather than just having a conversation. And I think this sense that that time is always expanding and contracting, um, when I have thoughts about mortality or when I have thoughts about death, um, I kind of go into this space where I think about the enormity of it and it's just something we can't conceive of on any kind of a normal time scale, right? Like it's beyond anything we can conceive. And I think that's the effect that I get when I listen back to it is we're expanding and contracting and I'm just looking into this void of mystery of what the world is beyond us. And, um, it kind of puts me into that void. And, and it'll be interesting to see whether that's true for other listeners as well. I'm sorry, I'm really morbid. I'm sorry if this is No, this morbid. is so great. No, and God, actually I'm like, so I'm jumping, out, like side note,
1: I'm like jumping out of my skin right now to go and rehearse this with all of this context that you've just told us, like, this is freaking amazing. Like this, you just added so much to my experience of this piece, it's awesome. Sam, take us now back to uh, Nick Weininger's Living Room, the first time you're sort of listening through and and hearing other people sing this piece. Uh, Presumably folks had additional bits of feedback. Um, Talk talk to us a little bit about your process of uh, gathering feedback on this piece and how you went through the revisions. Did you seek out advice or input from other composers? And do you think you'll continue to revise it at this point?
3: I think it's really interesting when you get someone's eyes on it, because I I am a revisor and a revisor, and I go back and look at things over and over and over again. Um, But the first time you have someone else look at a piece, um, it's almost like when somebody uh, is staying at your house and they come into your house for the first time and they don't even say anything. But as soon as you look at your house with someone else's eyes, you're like, oh, why is that rug there? Like, I don't like the colors of that rug. And why is the end table there? I should move that, you know, things like that. So, like as soon as we were in Nick Weininger's living room and people were reading it, it's like, oh, this should be, you know, in a 4-4 instead of an eight-eight and things like that. And I should change this notation and this notation because it would be more obvious. And I can look at it a hundred times and try to make that decision, but it wasn't just until having someone look at it that it immediately becomes obvious. And then there were some very specific pieces of feedback um, on, you know, this notation was unclear or this, you know, harmony didn't make as much sense, or things like that. And also, some of those changed. It's interesting. I had some in one way, and then when we read it in Nick Weininger's living room, um, it was Jane's living room actually, but Nick Weininger was was coordinating it. Uh, but we read it in this living room. Um, people said, "Oh, let's change it in one way," and then when we got back to IOC, it's actually like, "No, it should actually be this different way." And and those are different contexts as well. You know, having eight or ten people in a room working on a piece and trying to work it up is different from having 30 people trying to rehearse five pieces in a night, you know, and, and I'm definitely going to go back and, and with the feedback, um, from what I'm getting on, um, in IOC and just seeing how people react to it. um, I'm not gonna, you know, change any notes, but definitely the way things are notated, I think could be, uh, you know, a little clearer just to achieve the effects that I want.
0: Yeah, we've had, I've had a lot of conversations with composers over the years. Obviously, you know, IOCSF works with composers directly a lot, and uh, I'm always so excited when I have a composer who's in the ensemble that I can talk to in real time. You know, while we're rehearsing the piece, I can stop and go, hey, what do you think, breath right there or no breath right there? That's always really, really nice. But I also wonder about the experience experience you have as a singer in the choir working um, obviously on the piece yourself and so therefore understanding like well I should have set that different because I'm having a hard time reading that or I'm noticing that my colleagues in my bass section are having a hard time reading that because of x y or z like what that experience is like for you but also What's the experience like, and maybe I should like sign off the call for a second so you guys can talk without me present, but what the experience (laughs) is like for you working with me, with the conductor, on your piece in the moment during rehearsal?
3: Yeah, two different things. Um, I think... One, I will talk about uh, the relationship between com- composer and conductor. Um, and then I want to, while I'm thinking of it, also talk about the experience of like how things are notated and how that um, affects how the choir performs it. Um, but I'll start with, with between the composer and the conductor. I think what you've done, Zane, is great. Um, I actually really like it in that you have asked me some questions, but not too many. And I actually like that we are exploring a little bit your interpretation of how it should sound. And a lot, most of it, I would say matches up with what I was trying to convey, which you know actually makes me feel like I did a successful job in, in you know, writing down in black and white on paper, what I wanted and making the notations clear and what I wanted. Um, And I kind of like that, and you do this for most of our pieces. I think the only exception was the Michael Roberts piece where he had written that really lengthy thing um, that, that gave us a lot of context, that really lengthy description. Um, but, but most of them, you know, we, we will just sing them and then we'll, we'll talk about them and how we feel as we go through it. And I would like to tell the choir, um, you know, about a lot of things. Here's a little harmony and here's what I was thinking, or here's what I was trying to achieve with this setting, um, and little things like that. But, I actually think it's better that the choir explores it first and then maybe later in the season I can come in and reveal all these little things that I had going on in my head or re- reveal what I think about, you know, how the choir is achieving that. So I think what you've done in, in giving a little context and trying to answer uh, or asking me to answer some of the questions uh, that have come up uh, has been great. But, you know, I'd love the opportunity also as the season goes on to to just maybe explain for some people things they might not you know notice otherwise. But yeah, the, the other thing I wanted to talk about is um, realizing kind of how you notate something and, and the impression that that gives to the choir. And and recently, especially as we've been working through this piece, I think of a, a little bit like writing a recipe, and there's different ways to write it. You could write a recipe for croissants and say... You need to use exactly 110 grams of flour and 55 grams of butter or whatever it is, things like that, and let it rise for this amount of time and proof for this amount of time and write down every little step um, that needs to be done. And that gives the impression that the the person who's reading the recipe needs to do things in an exact way to get an exact result. Or you could write like a soup recipe and be like, you use one onion, one garlic, one head of garlic, one head of celery or whatever things like that one carrot and that gives the impression more like oh you can cook this for any amount of time if you don't have celery you can use fennel something like that and i thought about different things and and i i think you uh it something came to me you were mentioning a rehearsal the other day you were talking to soren austenfeld i think on an episode of this podcast it'll probably be released between this conversation and and when um uh, when this this podcast is released, but you mentioned something that um, they said that uh, they don't want repitching between the movements because they know what IOC is capable of, right. and that section that's a little more contrapuntal and has the strange two versus three relationships. I almost thought saying like this should be a little bit more aleatoric, like it doesn't all need to line up. But actually, you said Zane, like we want all this to line up. And I'm actually happy you did that because I think I actually do want that. I do want that amount of precision. And I think having something notated in such a complex three against two way that hopefully ends up being achievable, I ended up sending the message that, like, the rest of the singing should be precise as well. We should be precise about these rhythms. We should be precise about the notes. And I think it is a precise piece like it's a piece where you have these harmonies that that are interesting but we do want them to line up exactly correctly we have these rhythms that are a little complicated but we do want to be um precise about those without without feeling like counting too much so i actually think your input there helped communicate what i wanted to communicate in a way that maybe i myself didn't even realize prior to to starting the rehearsals
0: Hmm, that's really interesting, because yeah, it does, when I take a look at that piece, and the way that it's notated, it's very clear to me, at least this is what I interpreted from it, is that you were being very specific, you know, like this is in, you know, this is in this meter, or this time signature, and it's, it's three eighth notes, and then two eighth notes, and then two eighth notes, and then we get to this one section, and it's like, We've got dotted quarter, dotted quarter, sixteenth rhythms that are that are offset by a half a beat between these two parts, and it's like it's like a little piece of math all over the page. And I thought it was very, I thought it was very specific, and so that's why I approached it from that um, that aspect. And I think that attempting to put it together that way, in as precise a way as possible, gives us the ability for it to be a little bit flexible once we know it really well. And then I think the effect may be something that comes across in an aleatoric way without it actually being just aleatoric and therefore random.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I would agree with everything you just said, you know, and to give a little more context, that um, part of the poem, that is where it's a sonnet right it's 14 lines and usually in a sonnet you have the first eight lines the octet balanced against the last six lines the sestet and there's a change in perspective or a change in you know mood there so through the first eight lines we're all this omniscient voice talking about it um however we want to personify it but Actually, the only, I actually made an error in the transcription, but the only capital letter Rich uses in the whole poem is when that starts, when uh, the sestet starts, you are coming into us who never wanted to withstand you. You are coming into us who, um," that was the second one, but you are coming into us who cannot withstand you, who never wanted to withstand you. And, um. That's a change in perspective. I think we are now speaking to the entity, to death, to COVID, to however you want to personify that. And, you know, each voice, we're all kind of getting angry and like losing it almost. We're we're creating a chaos as we're explaining our feelings um, about this entity to the entity directly. And that's that's why it gets so intense rhythmically and and the textures get, you know, more complicated and, and wider harmonies as well.
0: Yeah. I really like the, the comparison you made to recipes as well. And, and as you were talking about this, either the specificity or the lack of specificity of certain recipes is is definitely a difference. One, you made a difference between baking something like a croissant versus making a soup. And obviously, when it comes to baking, you got to be a lot more specific. My wife's a chef, so I know about this kind of stuff. Um, But when it comes to a soup or something, there's a little bit more uh, leeway. You can play with it a little bit more, right? But Even with a recipe that's very specific, even with a croissant recipe, there's certain parts of it that that have to be specific. But then there's other stuff that you can kind of play with. And the first thing that came to my mind as you were talking about that was, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a chef named Fergus Henderson, but he's a Mm. British chef. He has a famous restaurant in London called St. John. He's quite famous for putting uh, British food kind of back on the on the scene long ago. But he has a couple of cookbooks. And one of them is called From Nose to Tail. And I got it a long time ago and was reading through it. And the recipes will say, you know, it'll list all the ingredients and the quantities of those ingredients. But then the instructions will say, cook the carrots as you like them. And that's all it says. (laughs) It doesn't say anything. It doesn't say how long. It doesn't say what to cut, how to cut them or anything. So it's like, here's the ingredient. And you should definitely include the ingredient. And you should definitely cook it. But aside from that, it's up to you. I think there's a really interesting parallel between that and musical, you know, interpretation of of musical notation. And obviously the notation needs to be specific enough that we understand what the composer wants or what the end result should be. But there is that ability to find a little bit of leeway in there and create something new when we put the recipe together.
3: And I'm thinking as well, Zane, because definitely in rehearsal already, and we've only rehearsed this four or five times, but you've already, you know, created some uh, rhythmic, um, you know, rubato and things like that and textures that I necessarily, you know, had never heard in it, but things that are very effective. So I also want to think about how to notate it such that, you know, be precise, but also you have a little leeway to figure things out. I might include a... um, I might include a direction like conversational or like a recitative or something like that, you know, when I put together the next version of this, Um, because I do want it to have a little leeway. Um, I don't want it to be like Ligeti or something like that, where you have to play every five against four and seven against five rhythm, exactly how it's there. There's no, there's very little interpretation in like a Ligeti or some certain messian pieces or something like that, you know.
1: Sam, can you tell us a little bit about um, as you were working on this piece, what the oral soundscape and textures you wanted to create were, and sort of what was the feeling you wanted to create?
3: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I wrote this piece over such a long time frame that I can like look into it and see little influences that I had over that time frame. Um, so I think I discovered the artist uh, Laurie Anderson um, sometime in like 2013 or 2014, and her song. Oh, Superman, where she's just sitting there with like a vocoder, like on stage, I think I did want it to sound a little bit like that, or that was something that influenced it. I was in a barbershop group um, for a summer in in 2016, and it wasn't my cup of tea as far as singing, but I think some of the close harmonies and, you know, homophonic textures um, definitely incorporated into how I set this. Um, there's something that in a very oblique way references Hamilton a little bit. So certainly listening to that, as everyone was, um, made it into my head and into this piece. Uh, I don't think most people would ever hear that, but, you know, I can explain where that is, too. One of the things, though, was... Um, d- It it ended up being all in the minor scale, like all in a a natural minor scale. Um, And it it took me a while to accept that that was the right way to do it and accept that that really was the texture and the harmony that I had in my head. and it was interesting once i decided to do that um you know when i've written other things and actually a lot of my other compositions wander all over the scale all over tonalities with um you know different accidentals and things like that they they kind of go all over this one i kept all in the minor scale and um it was interesting you know i think in in composition you're always looking for ways to create and release tension right you're creating um excitement and then you're you're winding down from that excitement, things like that. A lot of the time you can do that through a different chord or a modulation. And I think being limited to this minor scale, um, I found uh voicings, I found inversions, I found textures, things like that that I never would have um, you know, found otherwise, which was nice. Um, and and actually, you know, some of them I might use in other pieces as well, some of these things that I found. Um and then, then there was actually one section, the, um, the chorale section near the end, um, when we're saying, you are taking parts of us into places never planned. You are going far away with pieces of our lives. Originally, I thought I was gonna use some accidentals there. Um, what I wanted to achieve there was actually pretty specific. Um, I, I wanted it to be almost like a whisper. And I think when you have a voiced whisper, Um, you have kind of a core to the sound, but then you have these resonances that are going on above it. Right. And, and these kind of resonances hitting against each other. So I almost wanted it to be a chorale that never lines up. So the bass part is kind of the cantus there. Um, that's the melody. And then I wrote a chorale on top of that. And I thought, how can I make this into a dissonant chorale? That's not lined up. That sounds like a whisper. Um, and, and I have a lot of different versions of this over the years where I put in dissonances and, and bitonality and things like that in different ways. None of them ended up working until um, I noticed that other places in the piece, I had written a lot of harmonies that were tetrachords. Um, I think it's called where it's four notes in a row, like C, D, E, flat, F, that are voiced together in some way. And those were actually some of my favorite harmonies throughout the piece. So I thought, what if I change the alto and tenor parts to get as many of those as possible. Um, and that was kind of the basis for how I set that section and I think you know finally achieved what was in my my head there for kind of a voiced whisper sound. So yeah it, it was interesting to you know have those influences and and compose it um, all in all in one scale and, and see what I discovered as a, a composer going through that
0: i think uh, one way that you also have managed to achieve that creating tension and relieving tension is through the the rhythmic stuff too with the the creation of the tension through the middle section where they're the three against two and it's it's very rhythmically complex and then that releases into this chorale that you're talking about which in a harmonic sense does have some tension to it but at the same time rhythmically it's definitely a release of that tension because it's all lined up and homophonic and chorale like so that's another way I think that you've done that
3: and the whole feeling there is like we get so mad at death and we're yelling at death and then we get to the point where it's like you're so mad you don't get louder you get quiet and you're like I want to tell you exactly what you did to me and why I'm mad at you you know so that's the that's what I'm going for there
1: I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. I'm just
0: disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who's a parent can get can absolutely understand what you're talking about though. The getting louder and louder and then eventually you get really close and you just say, Listen to me right now. I'm gonna tell you what's going on. Sorry, I have, personally <laughs> Does someone that's have that's a four exactly and a half it. year
1: old? Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, Sam, uh, let's talk a little bit about what's coming up for you. Are there any projects you're currently working on that you would like to share with us? You think you'll write another piece?
3: Yeah, absolutely. For Ioc
1: specifically, yeah,
3: absolutely. I would love to write another piece for Ioc, and you know, like I mentioned, I work on this on a long, long time frame. Um, but I'm working on something right now um, that I've made a lot of progress on in the past couple months. Um, it's a text by Margaret Atwood, one of her poems. I think you were talking to Jake Heggie, and he had set some Margaret Atwood poetry recently as well. She's an amazing poet. Just some of the choices she makes. Um, this one's called "Variations on the Word Sleep," um, which I think is interesting because variations on blank is almost like a musical suggestion in itself. But really weird text that you know just has some nice images that are nice to dig into. Totally different from this one; just long lines, totally different textures, um, uh, much more. Um, you, you know, uses all twelve tones of the scale, not just one um, uh, one tonality. Um, so it'll be totally different and, um, I hope I get it done in the next couple months. Yeah. I really like having actually Sibelius lets you do it month to month, which for someone like me is great. Cause there's some months where I have no time to compose at all. And then I'm like, oh, I'm pretty free at work this month. I'm going to buy a month of Sibelius and, you know, see where I get. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would love to, I hope I have it done in the next couple months and, uh, love for you to hear it Zane, and, and see what we want to do next with that. So
0: awesome are you working on any other compositions that are non-choral any art songs or anything else at the moment
3: i am um yeah i i gave something to jane a little bit ago and you know this was also right before covid so she hasn't had a chance to put it into um one of her programs yet jane is a soprano in iocsf um i think she's sung up some of nick's pieces i think she's sung by a couple ioc members actually and i gave her one that's an ee cummings poem about hunting deer um and uh she said she wanted another piece before she programs it like a companion piece which which has been a good inspiration um i uh have um there's another poem i found uh called how to kill a hen from this book of kind of appalachian poetry and it's it's a weird piece about Slaughtering a hen, basically. So I thought it was an interesting companion to this e. e. Cummings poem. Um, they're both about killing animals, which again is pretty morbid, but um, one is from the perspective of the animal and one is from the perspective of the person who's slaughtering the hen. So I thought that would make an interesting, you know, uh, what is it, duology, an interesting uh, you know, duality, set of two. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs>
3: duality there. Um so, yeah, and, and I'm hoping to finish that also in the next couple um, months. So we'll see where I get there.
0: Is most of the compositional output that you've got things that are just kind of between you and your friends or between you and the choir that you sing in and stuff? Or are there places where like if someone wanted to find your music, is there somewhere that uh, you post it online or anything?
3: I'm not on, no, I'm not on the internet now with any of that, but, um, you know, I would hope to be as I, as I build some more, um, you know, right now I'm looking for things where I know somebody that could actually perform it. And so I'm writing kind of in that context. So it would be more art songs. It would be more choral music. Um, but we'll see. And I, I used to write, you know, when I was playing more brass instruments or things like that for, for brass or for piano or things like that. Um, you know, I just haven't been performing in those areas for a while, so um, sticking to the areas I perform. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I'm I'm really excited, and and you know, having this piece performed with Ioc um, has definitely been an inspiration as to what I should um, do in the future. So.
0: So should someone listen to this episode, say, and be like, oh, my gosh, I really want to uh, find Sam and, and get some of his music in my hands. What would be the best way for someone to do that, Sam? Send you an email or seek you out somewhere?
3: Yeah, you can send me an email and see what we can do.
0: Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll put put your uh, email address in our show notes that way folks can if they if they want to get in touch, uh, we'll we'll let them reach out to you that way.
1: And of course, folks can can uh, come and shake your hand and, and meet you at the uh, premiere of this piece, which is coming up at ioc's concerts December 4th and December 18th in San Francisco and in the East Bay and we'll be streaming the San Francisco concert as well. So if, you're, if this is at all piquing your interest, as I think it should, as it certainly has mine, come meet Sam, come hear this piece. We're really excited about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sam, thank you so much for, for coming on and chatting with us. I, it's been fascinating. And I, I personally am getting so much out of all these conversations because it gives me extra insight into the pieces that I'm preparing with the choir. Um, but it's just great to to look at you and talk to you about your music and hear more about your, what inspires you and what, you know, gets your, your motor running in the compositional world.
3: Yeah. It's all been a great, great process. And, and I've enjoyed the whole rehearsal process and the whole process of this interview as well, you know, getting ready for it and thinking about the piece myself. Um, so yeah. Thanks a lot for organizing all of this.
0: Yeah, heck yeah. It's been great. Have a great afternoon and we'll see you at rehearsal tomorrow.
3: I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> see you on Sunday. Bye. <laughs>
0: Let's finish off today's episode with one more recording from IOCSF with Sam singing in the bass section. From the 2018 Freshly Squeezed program, here is Turing Believes Machines Think by Gordon Hamilton. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast.
1: Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us
0: on all social media at inunisonpod.
1: And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think.
0: Choreography choreographed and taught by Chorus Dolores, who loves a good fussy, fussy, fussy. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble, Dynamic, on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.